Well, welcome to another episode of the Comic Book Historian Podcast. Today I'm here, Alex Rand, with my guest co-host, Larry King. Larry, how are you doing today? Oh, Alex, thanks for having me today. Well, today we're talking about 1978. I call it a quote-unquote hard year of adult storytelling. And we look at it as a year where in the comics world, there was a movement to elevate things above the four-color funny books that were so prevalent in the comic industry. So we're going to talk about the more noble parts of it and maybe some of the less noble parts of it. So let's start off with the birth of modern graphic novels. So there were several graphic novels before this year, but this particular year there seemed to be a confluence of several coming at the same time that seemed to mold the uh, graphic novels that would come later. And the first one would be Silver Surfer, The Ultimate Cosmic Experience by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. This was a 100-page story with new material by Kirby and Lee with inks by Joe Sinat. And it was Marvel Comics' first true graphic novel. And it's essentially the Silver Surfer Galactus story from Fantastic Four 48 to 50 all over again, but without the Fantastic Four. Larry, tell me what was going on behind the scenes between Jack Kirby and Stan Lee for this book to be made. Well, I think that the thing that uh, brought Jack and Stan back together was that there was actually a hope that they would make a Silver Surfer movie. And there was right. a producer, and I don't know his name, that was going to make this film. And as a Beach Boys fan, it was interesting because there was some notice in the trades or whatever at that time that there was going to be this Silver Surfer movie and that the Beach Boys were going to do the score to it. So one of the things about bringing Stan and Jack back is that if they had made the Silver Surfer movie, that Stan and Jack were going to get some kind of payment as writers. And I don't know if it would be as creators or just as have written the storyboards, you know, and the foundation story for that movie. Right. I think that was how the project came together. I guess the guy probably ultimately just couldn't get the financing on it. I don't know what happened to the film. Right, it fell apart. And this was around the time when the Doctor Strange movie came out and the Hulk second season was up on the air and all that. But, you know, one of the things, Alex, is, is that some of those characters, like, you know, it's not that hard to put Spider-Man in a low-budget television production or some of these guys. Right. But I think that trying to film the Silver Surfer... That's credible would have been would have been pretty difficult for them. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I think Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, just as far as the relationship between the two men was pretty strained. I think that Jack Kirby just wanted to kind of do a good job for the project, maybe make a little extra money. Stan was probably happy to be working with Jack again, but they didn't do any projects together after this because of various reasons. Some of them were that Jack Kirby wasn't happy in working with Stan on projects. At the same time, Kirby was leaving Marvel at this time for the Fantastic Four cartoon storyboards for DePatty Freeling, which were actually written by Stanley and Roy Thomas. This is the cartoon where there was Herbie the robot instead of the torch because his rights were tied up by Universal. Did anything ever come of that? <laughs> yeah, they had the cartoon. I mean, yeah, it's pretty, it's okay. It's all right. I mean, it's fun. I like watching it. No, I mean, what I'm saying is, is that the idea that the torch's rights were... Uh, uh, right. Um, oh, nothing came of that. 
Do you happen to know when the Fantastic Four radio series was produced? What, with Bill Murray as the Human Torch? Yeah, indeed. Uh, I don't know. It's got to be it's 77 or so. Maybe we'll look at that. Oh, at really? Right now. That's pretty late. Okay. So I mean, you they... know, Bill Murray was on Saturday Night Live by uh, 1976. Right. But but that's it's still got to fall into the pocket of 75, 76, 77, something like that. I see. So that being said, that book was made. It was one of those fireside books. Stan had made like, you know, seven of them or something. But this was the one that actually had new material in it, the one that he did with Jack. And it was seen as the dream team with him and Joe Sinna doing it. And it was put into book format. So you can get it at a bookstore, adult bookstore. And the next book that kind of had a similar presentation was A Contract with God by Will Eisner who felt that the comic medium was a legitimate adult expression. He felt that there could be genuine displays of human stories with positive or negative emotions. And Eisner called it a graphic novel, so publishers and adults took it more seriously. And even though it wasn't the first graphic novel, there was His Name is Savage by Gil Kane, It Rhymes with Lust by Arnold Drake, and Chandler 1975 by Starenko. But it was an interesting book because it was four short stories, not a novel, and but it would tell very human stories, like one where there was a woman cheating on her husband with like a young teenage dude, and the husband finds out about it and hits her, and then they get turned on by the argument and start having sex in front of the teenage dude that was there just trying to hook up with the older lady, and the teenage dude is just horrified. And that's what I think makes A Contract with God so interesting. One is that it was inspired by his daughter's death from leukemia, but two, that there were very human, very real stories, real humanity, dark humanity that likely came out from his days in the Great Depression. What do you think of that? Well, I have a question for you. So if you look at the legacy of A Contract with God, you see a lot more books than, than I do. Do you feel that Eisner, with a contract with God, did he influence, like, let's say, page layout, or can you see the influence of that book in uh, other people's works after Eisner? Well, yeah, because he... You know, with the Eisner graphics novels, did people take that and run with it? I think so, because those panels are not like the usual panels. They don't have the typical borders and things, and they're almost more like sketched out areas of a page yeah i think so i feel like i've seen graphic novels that follow that sort of technique yeah so eisner's interesting because you know he was certainly stretching the the comic form you know, you know what i'm saying uh, i right. mean if if i'm right about that and i think that people had to catch up with that but you can't deny that work as to whether like if you come right out of like jack kirby's Silver Surfer graphic novel that you could actually buy at the mall and then put contract with God with that, you know, time had to really catch up with the, what Eisner was doing there, I think, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, I you're think, talking um, about it. One, on one hand, you're talking about the end of an era, I think. And on the other hand, you're talking about almost like the start of something. Right. Now, as far as the, the sequence of graphic novels, there was Saber, a Slow Fate of an Endangered Species by Don McGregor and Paul Gulacy. So the background is 
Dean Mullaney, who created Eclipse Comics, he was selling content straight to the direct market, which would buy adult graphic novels as opposed to comic code approved newsstands. They provided sales royalties and creators to own their own characters. So this story, which McGregor created about a black swashbuckler, was set in the year 2020. There's interracial sex with a touch of Western sci-fi. It was successful and financially critically successful where a second run was printed and sold. I've read the pages and I've looked at them. I love it. You know, Paul Gulacy is kind of like carrying that Starenko vibe forward into the late 70s and early 80s. And so I love his stuff. There is an explosive ending at the end. The panels are pretty interesting. There's a lot of diagonal and centralized page layouts, which are really fascinating to look at. And it was able to, and Don McGregor was able to create another black hero, which of course he brought that with him from the Black Panther comic that he worked on for a while. So it's a true graphic novel, reading it, truly adult. And although maybe a lot of people may not know about it now, they should, because at the time it was one of those books that pushed the graphic novel format forward. Does the character supposed to look like Jimi Hendrix, or did I just see that? Do you think that's there? Can you Maybe it is. I mean, I never thought of it like that, but I suppose. The guy looks cool like Jimi Hendrix does, yeah. I was going to say, though, that there is, you know, one of the Hendrix albums covers, his uh, first greatest hits album when he was, al- he was still alive, and it's called Smash Hits. So it's Jimi Hendrix and his band, and they're in, like, some kind of Mexican town or whatever, so they look kind of like banditos or whatever. So that's, you know, Jimmy dressed as sort of like this character, in a right. sense. I don't know if, if Sabre fits into, you know, the um, pop culture heroes like Shaft and things like that of the 70s. Um, right, right. I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, the character looks like a guy from 1978. I mean, I know that it's futuristically set, but you know what right, I'm saying? Right, he right. looks like a 70s man, so. That's an interesting take, yeah. So now the next book, which is similar but not exactly the same, but it is a seminal in its own way, Superman and Muhammad Ali, It was inspired by the Superman-Spider-Man crossover of 1976. It's said that Don King brought the idea to DC Comics and Jeanette Kahn had Julia Schwartz edit the book and Neil Adams to pencil it. Joe Kubert designed the cover and Adams redrew it. People like Jimmy Carter, Telly Savalas, Sonny Bono, etc. were on the cover and Jeanette Kahn needed celebrities to sign their consent on it. Dick Giorgiano and Terry Austin assisted Neil and they were guys from his continuity studios. And Danny O'Neill wrote the story, but they say maybe not necessarily the dialogue. I remember you had mentioned that maybe Neil did the dialogue on this. So how do you feel like that transitions into his continuity comics? Well, so Superman versus uh, Muhammad Ali. Uh, one of the things that's interesting to me about it is, is that it's published in this like, you know, treasury edition or limited collector's edition or whatever DC was calling them. Right. And I think that by 1978, that format's kind of long in the tooth. And, you know, it's interesting that DC didn't have the faith or didn't have the foresight to go ahead and, I mean, you know, they probably own publishing companies too. You know, I mean, it's interesting that it would have been interesting if they had taken the route of going into the mall stores with Superman versus Muhammad Ali, like 
they managed to do with the Silver Surfer book. Right. I think that the artwork, and I was a big fan of Neil Adams in the earlier 70s, but, you know, he began to sort of develop his own graphic style. Right. And I, you can see it in this book, Superman versus Muhammad Ali. I think that it really foreshadows his work with uh, continuity comics and Miss Mystic and books like that. Yeah. And so there are some great panels and some great pinups from Superman versus Muhammad Ali. But it doesn't uh, resonate with me so much. I totally like Muhammad Ali, and I'd recommend you know doing research on him. I think he's fine. But I think that the story in the book is just you know right out of Mort Weisinger era right. Superman right. Luthor stories. You know, if you're going to fight a mortal, you know you're going to have to put Superman in certain right. conditions. I guess it speaks highly for Superman that if he could almost. <coughs> Muhammad Ali, or, you know, uh, put up a, a battle with the heavyweight champion of the world, I guess, right, right. That he had, uh, shows his intestinal fortitude, you know. Right, because, but it's because they, it's, basically he was in a Red Sun boxing ring, so Superman was depowered, so he was fighting Muhammad Ali as a normal human being at the time. You know, there's a possibility, Clark Kitch, that you'd wipe the floor with him, you know, because, you know, if he, if he didn't have that intestinal fortitude or whatever. Right, But I am interested in this book. One of the things that we don't really have at our uh, fingertips right now is to know how what kind of accolades that this book may have gotten. I mean, maybe somebody bought a million copies and gave it away. I mean, you know, who knows? Right. So, I mean, look, it's Neil Adams feels, and you were telling me this from, from your interview with him, that he feels that this book is significant. And I think the reason Neil Adams feels this significant is that they shined a light on, I don't know how really to say it, but they they shined a light on the times, you know. As a black champion, basically, yes. Yeah, and so I would be very interested in finding out if black readers actually got this book. You know what I'm saying? I mean, who bought it? Who owns it right now? You know? Right, right. I, I I think it's very compelling. I, I don't know that maybe, you know, I, I you know something about it, but I would just have to tell you right now, I'm a receptor in this situation. I'd love to know more about why this is an it book for people. Right, right. Because maybe reading it straight off, it doesn't feel like it's such an it book. You know, there are books where they... No, they, I mean, it, it's okay. I mean, it's like if you loved Elvis or the monkeys or whatever, you know. Right, uh, right. Uh, you know, Superman versus Justin Bieber or whatever. I mean, if it's your if it's your thing, then fine. Or Don Rickles, right? Or Don Rickles. <laughs> well, I say that because Jack Kirby. Well, yeah, look, hey, hey. Well, look, save that one because we could do thirty minutes on that right there. So Right. Because Jack Kirby did use Don Rickles in, in Jimmy Olsen's comic. So you know that like Conan O'Brien or somebody tried to put that in front of Don Rickles' face or not Jay Leno. He said, get that away from me. Oh, really? That's hilarious. So, but yeah, I find it kind of interesting. I know that there's a lot of work that went into that book. Whenever a celebrity didn't want their face on it, then Neil Adams would have to redraw their face. So it was a lot of work, but... Huh. Um, but it's a fun book. It's a fun book. I like looking at it. I like Muhammad Ali. I like his attitude, and he's a cool guy. So for me, it's a fun book. And Neil Adams goes in more of that photorealistic style. So they look like well, almost like photographs of Muhammad Ali 
kind of yelling at you as you're reading it. And it's kind of, it's fun for me because I like that boisterous personality of his. Is the photo references like obvious or they look like model sheets or, you know, I mean, well, they could be, they could be, who knows. Right. I mean, with Neil, it's like he, it could be, it could be either way. Some of the pages to me look more like they were model sheets than they were like actual comic book continuity pages. You know? Right, right, right. They were pinups. Right. Now, that being said, it does ride along the spectrum of trying to elevate a story into a more of an adult storytelling modality with Neil Adams art and all that. But let's move from Superman because this is 1978. It is a year for Superman as well. So Superman, the Richard Donner movie. A lot of people look at that as compares to the other comic book movies or TV shows at the time as the cinematic, higher adult storytelling masterpiece as far as what was available for comic book character movies at the time. Masterpiece. <laughs> and... It was, <laughs> and it was written by Mario Puzo, who used to write magazines for Martin Goodman over at Timely before it was called Marvel. Richard Donner directed, adding what he called verisimilitude to make it as real and appealing to real adults as possible. Donner had the script cut down a lot and into two sequels. Donner and the Salkins had money conflicts because Donner wanted quality along with the John Williams score. And Donner eliminated all possible camp to avoid the Batman 1966 fallout where no one would take it seriously. And audiences and critics loved it at the time. Really? And, and it did get an Academy Award in special effects that year. So it, <laughs> it did, though. But in comparison <laughs> to movies that came later, yeah, the special effects aren't as interesting. But I will tell you, as a kid, I loved it. And I still love it, but every you know everyone's mileage may vary. I know how it goes. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You know, I was 16 years old when the movie came out, and I was 15 when Star Wars came out. And I just have to tell you that when you're that age, you're really a little bit past the sense of magic and wonder, in my opinion, you know? And I have spent this week upon the Alex Challenge because I had always intended to re-explore the Superman movie once. I, I wanted to, you know, just totally see it all and then put it away forever. So this week, uh, I did watch what, it, what was called the 1978 theatrical version of Superman. And I just thought it went totally from 10 to 0 to 10 again, you know. I would put this movie in the genre of it's what the Medved brothers called Hollywood Hall of Shame. It's a troubled production. No, Alex. good, 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 good. <laughs> right. so, it's Alex has his head in his hands. All right, so but I'll continue. I'll, I'll fight through it. Anyway, so this these the Salkins who own the rights to Superman set out to set to make two movies at the same time, and they had successfully done this earlier in the seventies with Richard Lester, right? And they made the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers. The problem mm -hmm. was is none of the actors realized that they were making two movies. Right. And then there were all kinds of lawsuits, and I'm sure the Salkins had to pay everybody ultimately for two movies. So they start to do it again with Superman 1 and Superman 2. And you can look at any time any studio tries to make movies two at the same time, 
and they're always a story. You know, it's generally speaking, it's a disaster. We're up to this now where maybe Peter Jackson did that with Lord of the Rings, and certainly the uh, what the Russo brothers did that with uh, Avengers 3 and 4. But the Superman movies are victimized by the sort of what you call producing by committee, and also because that they set out to make these two movies, and then at a point they were facing a release date. They ran out of money, and they were beholden to Warner Brothers. The film, the film, first film was supposed to come out in the summer of 78, and they didn't get it out until basically Christmas of 78. And it's like the film was still wet when they delivered it to the theaters. And they ended up tacking on this. Alex and I both agree that it's a, that we don't like the ending of the movie. It's an ex machina where Superman turns the earth back in a selfish gesture to just say Lois Lane instead of just saying, well, you know, things happen, you know. Right. And 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 the possibility of, you know, time travel and, you know, the harm that might be caused by that, you know, that's all kind of washed over. So uh, I think that the first 45 minutes of Superman is pretty brilliant. I think Marlon Brando is awesome in the film. I'll give the special effects a pass because they, they're what you call physical effects, but not as good as Star Wars. They're very 1978 Shepperton English sort of special effect. But Tom Mankiewicz, the screenwriter himself, said as soon as they hit Metropolis, it becomes a comic strip. So Mankiewicz admits it, that the film takes a tonal shift when they introduce Christopher Reeve. And I think it's horrible, by the way. I think it's just the acting is not ready for prime time so you get this marlon brando beginning and then you get the whole glenn ford origin story of superman and i think that's all extremely iconic and you know you're the scene of Superboy, the little boy landing on the planet that's like that's iconic memorable cinema right but then the movie goes to mm-hmm. the depths of this sort of cocktail dialogue or maybe cocaine dialogue you know, where uh, super like Clark Kent even says, hey, Lois, did you smoke pot? Or, you know, there's this I mean, he, like he makes this gesture like he's smoking pot. And Lois Lane is really portrayed as someone that's illiterate and of loose morals. And, you know, the whole thing with can you read my mind? And right. the, and just 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 the, you know, I- instead of having like, I think, a good story, they're just glopping tropes in this movie. Right. So I really am sorry, everybody that I'm bagging on this uh, Holy grail. It just doesn't work for me. Right. No, that's fair. Yeah. The do, can you read my mind scene is my least favorite of the whole movie and the rotating the earth backward. I could almost see that. I think, as like, I think in the case, I think in the case of Superman though, the movie that came out, that's the compromise they had to make to make a $100 million successful blockbuster movie. Now, right. I hate that. I'd really rather have an auteur make the movie. And Dick Donner is a, is a fine filmmaker, and he made a lot of great movies. If you're interested in Superman, I'd say search out the footage that appeals to you. But when it comes to Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder and their uh, repartee, that sucks. I hate it. Hmm. That's funny. And again, I mean, I like them, but 
you know, I get what you're saying. I do like Christopher Reeves' portrayal. I thought he fit the costume well, and he had a good charisma in his face. I I did feel that Otis was a ridiculous character. The real estate scheme of Luther's was was silly. The re- reversing the rotating of the Earth to change history was an odd thing because then what's to stop him from doing that? You know, if he you know fails at a job interview or something else. So, well, and if you look at both Donner films, if you look at Donner one and I mean Superman one and two. Donner chose to use the same ending in both parts. Right. I mean, come and, on. Right. So and it becomes this crazy ex machina. It was like, is Superman, is he going to do that like every time? Right. That was in Richard Donner's uh, second, the Richard Donner cut. Whereas in the Richard Lester version, which was 49% Donner, he does the amnesia kiss instead, which actually was better idea wise. But. Well, I mean, and, I mean, but for them to do it twice, you know right. what I'm saying? That is, you can't forgive it. I mean, doing it once is already ridiculous. Doing it twice, yeah, I know what you're saying. But that being said, in comparison to the other, you know, comic movies of the time, you know, uh, it's still, it's still, it's still cream of the crop. It's still cream of the crop. You know, that Batman 1966 feature film. Written right. by, I, I'm going to assume, written by Lorenzo Simple, who wrote the like the Wonder Woman pilot. It's a it's it's a tight tight uh, script, and in in that in that idiom of '66, the special effects all work. And right. you know, Alex, I haven't said it in this version of our episode, but the blue screen it just really was horrible. I couldn't believe that it was so bad that it looked so Shepard and Studios, you know, James Bond. There's even one scene where, like, it's almost like, I've got you, Ms. Lane. Who's got, you got me? Who's got you? And yeah. it's like you see it's almost like an elevator or something. You know, he, he st- she stops falling, and then they go back up, and it just doesn't work. Yeah, so, I see what you're saying. So I, uh, I know that we talked about, you know, the ballet and the wire work where Chris is, looks uh, very elegant flying around and all that. Right, but when you start looking at these various cuts, they like repeat shots and stuff. No, I know what you're saying. Did you have any affection? I mean, so since since this is your touchstone, what about all these versions? What about Superman the extended version? Do you have any idea? What did it end up just being footage from the Donner stuff that they ultimately put back in Superman two in the well, extended Superman? Well, I'm not. I haven't. I don't think I've seen the extended Superman version. I think the area of fascination about this film is, is just that there's, you know, a million hours of footage, and right. I will not deny that there's some iconography uh, in it and some brilliant performances. But there's a lot to wade through, you know. Right. There's and a they lot haven't. To wade through. They haven't cracked it yet. But it is one of those first comic movies, though where they decide, let's get some Oscar-worthy people in here. Let's get Marlon Brando. Let's get Gene Hackman. And, you know, that is a recipe to make some comic movies pretty good. I mean, that's what they do in modern comic book movies. They get, like, really established actors and then throw in some new people. And I think that's a good little formula um, that they stumbled onto. And with Richard Donner wanting verisimilitude, that was a word he would have all over the place when he was filming this, Again, that's that need for the people at the time to kind of give more of a sense of realism or telling the adult 
story, not, you know, some kid cartoon. But there were some kid cartoon moments for sure. And I'm sure Richard, Richard Donner would would tell you, hell yeah, it was compromised. You know, I mean, you know, when, when you watch the behind the scenes documentary, it was a runaway. They, right, they right. never gave him, but they never gave him a budget, you know, or anything like that. So Dick Donner is just doing it by sense of touch or something, you know, trying right, to finish. Right. That's right. So now let's now start talking about maybe the not so great or possibly failed or the bad <laughs> outcomes of or bad outcomes of this uh, push for adult storytelling or just of 1970 in general. So. You know, and Superman in comparison to some of the comic standards on television, you have Wonder Woman, which was actually maybe not as cinematic, but possibly more charming than the Superman movie. I really like, although that went from the Wonder Woman show went from 1975 to 79. So 78 was like their second to last season. It was was produced by Paramount. Mm -hmm. And it has a high production value it has the the values you associate with paramount television shows right but i mean i love the wonder woman show i watched that as a kid too i liked the first season the most with all the 1940s stuff when things got a little funkier with you know being a late 70s setting maybe i liked it a little less but um, they're still fun but i still feel like the superman movie is more cinematic than than the wonder woman show is yeah I mean, that John Williams soundtrack's pretty good. No, and I think really where I was just going to say is, is you're about to launch into, like, Nicholas Hammond's Super, uh, Spider-Man and stuff. Whoever was making those, and whatever factory it was, it didn't have the highest standards of the Wonder Woman series. And I think that the Hulk, you know, pretty much for what it is, it it does well. That's a popular show. People like episodes of that show, you know? Right, I mean, right. Popular, so when, but it's still, so, it's, but, but the Spider-Man episodes that we're talking about in a minute were just blah. I mean, you know, I mean, they just, there were crime procedurals and they just totally wanted to avoid, let's say, the Green Goblin, you know, and everything right, that right. made Spider-Man who he was. Right. They didn't really have the, his rogues gallery in there. So then going into the TV shows at the time, other than Wonder Woman, you had the second season of the Hulk in 1978. You had the second year of the Spider-Man show, which had premiered in the late 1977. And then you had the premiere of the TV, made-for-TV Doctor Strange movie with Peter Hooten and Jessica Walter as Morgan Fay. Yes. So one of the things about the Hulk is, is that isn't it kind of a merger of like, you know, the fugitive with David Jansen? Yes. You know, he's got a theme song, The Lonely Man. You know right. what I'm saying? So, right. so they managed to inject some depth into that show with the David Banner character, you know. And like I said, I think before, you know, the Hulk was probably going to show up at the beginning of the episode, you know, to satisfy right. that. And then he'd be on uh, maybe later on. But whatever that was, you know, melodrama or whatever that the Hulk was doing. That was pretty successful. That was a good way to, you know, you got a a superhero that's popping up once in a while. But I think that that's a little more of a compelling show. It is, but it's definitely not not very comic book of Hulk, though, to be like the fugitive, right? What what they did was a, a TV studio said, let's just make it like the fugitive. You know, let's make it like another TV show and throw the Hulk in every now and then. So that's basically what they did. It was like a bunch of TV guys that decided that 
Not that there's anything wrong with that. It did really well. The Spider-Man TV show didn't have well, that. And, and these guys um, have to have a concept that they can relate to to even go to, with it. You know? Right, to green light these things. But the Spider-Man TV show didn't have that same hook to it. You know, Nicholas Hanman, Hammond, the reason why I liked him is because I think I, when I was a kid, I was watching reruns. So I was watching that around the same time or close to the same time that the Spider-Man animated cartoon that came out in the late 80s, early 90s came out. And that's Peter Parker. I think they modeled off of Nicholas Hammond. So for me, it was like one continuous Peter Parker character that was on TV. And so it worked for me. But if I were to imagine, you know, being someone that just watched it on TV, I'd wonder, where is Dr. Octopus? Where is the lizard? Where are all those guys? You know, where's where Spider-Man? Is... Right. And where's Spider-Man? Okay. Well, why is it so hard for Spider-Man to fight like two gangsters? You know, because he's way, he's way stronger than that. So, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. And again, the, the special effects weren't really quite up to par. You'd see him on the side of a building, but then you'd see him like connected to like a rope or something. So that was a little silly. Even the even you know the, the name of the actor. You know the name of the actor that plays J. Jonah Jameson in the first movie. It's David. He he plays Larry Tate in the original Bewitched. That's right. That's right. From the sixties. Yeah. And so that was the only thing that really held me in the pilot. Right. Was his take on J. Jonah, which is uh, an interesting take. It's not you know what we would. What, who's the guy? Who's who's our guy for J. Jonah? The and he plays Commissioner Gordon too. And he's also on Allstate commercials. Come on, help oh, me. Oh, oh, you're talking about um, the new uh, J. J. Jonah Jameson from the Tobey Maguire movies. Yeah, I, I, I forgot his name, but I know who you're talking about. So, in the case of, uh, I wanted to talk again about the fact of what it was like for me as a kid when these movies came out. The Spider-Man pilot would have been in the fall of 77, so I was 15 at the time. Mm-hmm. And I do remember watching it. And again, the thing about the Spider-Man pilot that's mainly interesting is, you know, David's portrayal of of, uh, Jonah. If you watch that movie, and I tried to watch it the other night, it must have been two hours when it was actually on TV because it was 90 minutes on YouTube. (laughs) And I watched a hard 30 minutes of it. And it was it just finally I was going to say positive things about it. And I finally said, to hell with this. Get me out of here. Right. Spider-Man was was a little bit okay because it was shot on the streets. There were like no sets for that movie, you know, maybe for the Daily Bugle or something. But Spider-Man was just like he was just hanging out on the street or something. You know, it was just crazy. It was just shot like cinema verite. Spider-Man is out on the street. And he does. He's not in the film very often. And when he pops up, it's almost just there's no real reason for it. Right. The Spider-Man episodes, as far as I could tell, they just really suffered from not having a reason to be. Did you find right. any episodes that well, I mean, really had a, had a beginning, middle, and end? I mean, no. Well, they were all kind of day in yeah. life. But it wasn't really, it wasn't the comic book. It wasn't enough like the comic book. Hey, man, the really interesting Spider-Man series of 1978 is not uh, the Nicholas Hammond series. Have you seen it? It's yeah. from Japan. Oh, okay. So while this terrible travesty was in the American television uh, market, and again, if we haven't mentioned this, CBS didn't had no faith in the series. Right. Um, they felt like it was for children, that it had no adult viewers, and they have never released it on DVD. Mm-hmm. You can get the uh, Marvel 
co-production with Toei Films, yeah. 1978 Japanese Spider-Man. Huh? And pound for pound, if you just want to watch something that's going to entertain your mind, I got to tell you. It might be that one, huh? It's that one, yeah. That's and cool. of course, it's, of course, it's lunatic. You know, Spider-Man looks kind of like a, a Japanese John Denver or something, you know, with a guitar on his back, driving a motorcycle. And he's got a giant robot. And actually, believe it or not, from the Spider-Man series, this whole idea of the, you know, having a giant robot as equipment, you know, became part of their culture. That's so the Spider-Man series was, you know, influential in the Japan superhero TV shows. It's interesting because Marvel and Toei had an agreement for three years, but Marvel used very little of the characters. They were only, I guess, in a Shogun Warrior book. Mm, I see. And then mm. there's like, I guess, I guess there's like a Tomb of Dracula movie that was there made is. in Japan. So there's right. several Marvel uh, properties. But yeah. again, the Nicholas Tamman series is so bereft of joy. You know, I just, I, I just, you know, it's very interesting to find that. Uh, I mean, I totally understand that you were a little kid, but you know, as an adult, I mean, it's interesting that that I, I totally get it. But it's interesting that you're still finding, oh, that you can hang on these because these are really bad movies that we're talking. I about mean, here. it might be, and they're so- not bad in the Plan Nine sense. They're just bad because they nothing happens. Well, they, it's probably. I mean, my emotions are probably tied to like sentimentality. But, I mean, Spider-Man wasn't necessarily funny like he is in the comic. There wasn't that much action either like there was in the comic. There wasn't a rogues gallery. There wasn't much human interaction with other people that made sense in the real world. Was so Nicholas Hammond a role model for you, or was he sort of like a too angsty, too creepy, like a spider? Right. I don't know about role model. I think you would find that in most of his other movie appearances, he's like, you know, the scary guy, you know, like the right. psychopath. Right. Interesting. I could see that, I guess. So that but, impacts me when I think of Nicholas Hammond, you know, that he's just right. yuck. Right, right. So now Doctor Strange movie with uh, Peter Hooten and Jessica Walter as Morgan Le Fay. And this is what, some say that it's actually even worse than Spider-Man. Doctor Strange is a psychiatrist. Dormammu is not there. It, instead, there are a couple demons, Balzaroth and Asmodeus. Um, a lot of people know Jessica Walter as the mom from Arrested Development. What'd you think of that? I I, I didn't mind it. I like that there's a there's what there's a psychedelic light show in the middle of it. That's kind of fun. But other than that, it's actually hard to watch. I I can't actually sit through the whole thing in one time. I have to kind of get up and do something else. Well, I didn't have the actual opportunity to see the full length torturous you know CBS version. Right. So the versions I saw, you know, uh, enlightened it, you know, it, it, it lifted it up. So I wanted to ask you, when you uh, mentioned that, you know, Dormammu and characters like that weren't in this film. Right. Considering that this is CBS television in 1978, what kind of Doctor Strange movie could they have hoped to have put on, you know? Right, exactly. It was inter- I mean, it was, it was, it's interesting that CBS, when they did these characters had to, like, stretch these characters to their limit. You know, Cap and, you know, everybody else really not resembled their comic book versions at all. But were they going to do, you know, put uh, Lucifer, you know, or whatever on network television? Where could you go? And and you'll have to help me with this movie. What really happens here? Is Morgan Le Fay, like, you know, a a witchy witch? Or is it just a bunch of bullshit going on? 
she is a witchy witch. She serves the evil entity to bring the Who's evil that? entity. Uh, I think that was Asmodeus, but I'm not sure. Is that um, like the, the, the Satan stand-in? The not yeah, Satan, but Satan? Pretty okay, much. All right, fine. Pretty much. Kind of like the Dormammu wannabe kind of guy. And uh, Mephesto or something. Right. And she has to like kill the Ancient One in order to bring him to, the, to Earth. And she kind of fails at doing that. Doctor huh. Strange becomes a Sorcerer Supreme. And then at the end, he plays a little magical trick or a prank on a street magician and ends the movie like that. It was kind of silly. But he looked like Stephen Strange, which is cool. Did we, hit, did we tackle them all? Is there another comic movie before I throw my nope. point out? Nope. All right. Well, one of the things you and I have previously spoken about, but to me, first off, all these people, they go, Nicholas Hamlin, I didn't... I didn't do camp. And then with the Superman movie, Richard Donner removed all trace of camp. Well, I don't know. There's a bunch of hokey, crazy, campy stuff in Superman. So, you know, if it's not camp, that's fine. Because that just elevates the Batman movie to me. If you're saying, because I would say that camp is not a bad word. That's really hard to obtain, to achieve, you know? Right. You know, Nicholas Hammond said, well, I didn't play Spider-Man as camp. Well, that really didn't rescue it because he didn't play him very uh, well. But I did want to say that there was a comic book movie or a comic book project that was right around the corner from this in January of, of 1979 that I felt that, that it may have been silly, but it, it had some joy and it also had some craft of writing in it. And that would be, and I think it's produced by Hanna-Barbera, and it was an NBC thing. And let me tell you something, this, nobody saw this coming. This is in the era of maybe like Freddie Silverman as the head of NBC, and they were doing like Super Train and all these crazy shows of that era. So I remember what turning on TV, and it's like, what the heck? Adam West is on? I'm going to have right. to cancel my plans. Like, I'm ready to leave, and I go, what is this? I mean, that's immediate immediacy of you know not being able to, to know that it was coming on. Right. And so anyway, this thing is called The Legend of the, of the Superheroes, and... I think our listeners probably know about it. And I don't know. Do you want to call it camp? I don't know. It's like it's actually like the Justice League or something or on NBC. And the first week they do an hour uh, episode where they actually face all of their number one villains. You know, all these members of the Justice League, I guess. Right. And then the second week, they do something crazy where I think it's a parody of the Dean Martin sh television show, which Dean Martin evolved into something called the Dean Martin Celebrity Roast. So I believe that the second episode of uh, League of Superheroes is a parody of the Dean Martin thing. It where is. They do it is. They, ro they roast the superheroes, yeah. So I would tell you, though, that you know, if you want to say it's silly, that's fine. It certainly didn't have the production values of the 66 Batman. But, you know, Adam, I think, is a, a great comedic actor. You've got Jeff Altman in there. You've got Howard Morris from right. your show shows and the Mel Brooks movies and, and so forth like this. And so, you know, it's probably Mark Evanier could probably school us. It's probably written by somebody famous or whatever. So anyway, I just wanted to say as uh, depressing as all of those CBS efforts are and are that are not true to the characters, even if you don't like the mm -hmm. 
juvenileness of the uh, legends of these superheroes, you can pretty much recognize those superheroes for who they are in that show. Right. No, that's right. You know, Batman's not wearing a trench coat <laughs> or something. Right. I mean, they could have at least stuck Batman's hood underneath his cape, though, you know, on the bottom of it. Right. But it's like hanging out over the cape. Remember that? Yeah. And, you know, the intimacies of those cowls, I don't know. I don't know if Adam was like wearing his 66 cowl or if they had to use a cheap cowl. I mean, you know, right. that's right. a pretty that's a look. That's a pretty delicate and sophisticated thing that you're talking about. There. <laughs> but they I didn't do, get I it do. right. What are you going to do? But I do like the roast episode. It's a lot of fun. It's it's really funny, actually. Bonus Ed McMahon, right. you know, a 70s icon, and William Shallert also, who was on Star Trek and Patty Duke. And, and William Shallert was on, like, in every sitcom. So right. for him to be there is appropriate also. Right. But, I just, but again, the works that really stand out are the ones that are infused with some sense of joy. And you, I will give that to the Donner Superman. So if any of these things rise above the fray, it's because that they have a soul. You know what I'm saying? Right. There's a soul to the, to, to the, to the thing. Uh, there's a soul. So now the next one that we haven't talked about before, it's uh, Warren Magazine's 1984, which uh, premiered in 1978. Bill Dubay was the editor. He got permission from Warren uh, Magazine to create his own kind of adult science fiction magazine that was a response to the heavy metal magazine and it ended up not being what it lived up to be although there were some interesting things in it a lot of it was like bill debay's weird racist sexist stories like there's one about white people that hunt down blacks and eat them just random weird stories there was one instance where i saw a wally wood story like one of his elf stories that Bill DeBay would put in really weird dialogue that wasn't actually Wally Wood's dialogue, but like weird stuff about how fun it is to like beat up a girl or something like that. Really weird who was, stuff. Who, who was contributing to uh, this 1984? So it sounds like Wally Wood did some stuff, and we know Richard Corbin. So right, did Richard they just Corbin, steal yeah. from, from uh, Heavy Metal, or, or is it Gray well, Morrow, as usual cast characters? What's going on? Well... I mean, it depends on which issue you're talking about. But, yeah, I mean, a lot of these guys were doing our guys that we know. Um, Jerry Grandinetti. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he was a specific guy, but <clears throat> the names are familiar, you know, when you flip through them. But Bill Dubay would put weird dialogue on top of other people's art. Another weird thing that happened with this was Harlan Ellison has a story called The Boy and His Dog, and Dubay, without his permission copied a boy and his dog and made a you know a short comic version for 1984 magazine and word got out to harlan ellison who sued warren magazine and won in the 1980s and some people believe that's one of the contributing factors that ran warren magazine out of business so that's that's kind of a little interesting fact and just kind of again an attempt at adult storytelling but it didn't quite pan out which is what the, the second half of what we're talking about is. I was hoping you were going to tell me it folded in 1984. Exactly. Well. When? How long did it last? Well, it was defunct in 1983. Close. Very close. It might be even more ironic that it didn't make it. There you go. But let me ask. When does, like, Epic Magazine fit that's, into this? That's more like 1980. 
But I mean, is there a is there a, a passing of the torch in a sense? Would you say? Well, I mean, like, I mean, like let me let me let me put it in this terms. So these magazines, and I don't know if like Bob Guccione had had one or if Hefner had one or whatever. But these ideas of these fantasy magazines, and you have like Heavy Metal, which was based on a, a French publication, and then you get into 1984, and then you get into epic publications. But I think that the lifespan of those was really short, wasn't right. it? I mean, weren't those magazines ultimately, the brands might have been worth something, but as periodicals, they they just they started failing. Well, yeah, but I mean, epic and heavy metal went for a while, though, for years. More than 1984 did. 1984 just had a fundamental problem with the, 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 the creator, I guess. Yeah, the editor. He just wasn't, again, it was like, it was kind of like the like the Doctor Strange or the Spider-Man show, it's like, yeah, it's an adult. You know, it's like trying to take it to that adult level, but it just didn't quite pan out like like maybe some other more, like better quality things did. Sounds like that you're saying that it was just vulgar or, you know, offensive. Right. That that was passing right. for adult content. Yes, yes, that's correct. Well, so, and what it was, the what was in, in this era of, of, of uh, 78 to 83, did Jim Warren have other books at the time? I mean, oh, yeah. Pre- and stuff already, like, folded? They had other publications, but 1984 was just, you know, Bill Dubay's book that he w- was able to get Warren to agree to, to publish. And it came out of that time in 1978 to try to make some adult sci-fi. And uh, it, tur- it just turned out to be kind of this vulgar piece of meat. So I was looking at the uh, illustration that you sent me from 1984, and it was a Corbin cover, right. but it just seemed like extra ugly. I don't know why, but the thing that I just noticed was is it just had that Warren page layout. You know, it looked like it was an issue of the Spirit or a really late period uh, Famous Monsters. So right. I, you know, I couldn't tell. I mean, you know, it just sort of looked like. Like it was another Warren magazine, you know, like distinctively like that. Totally, it is. It is. But I have quite a few of those. The name changed into 1994 later. When? Why? They didn't long before 1984, huh? Right. I think as 1984, as, uh, you know, in the 80s, it changed its name to 1994 because it wasn't really making sense to call it 1984 anymore. I guess. What does 1994 say to you? I mean, maybe they were trying to predict their end later and... It was optimism. Who knows? It's always bad when you start applying hypotheticals to failures. That's it. That's it. So now the next part of 1978 that could be seen as a negative or an aspect of it that didn't quite work out was the DC Comics implosion. So DC Comics was trying to keep up with Marvel spending throughout the 70s. Marvel got saved by Star Wars sales, Star Wars comic sales, and maybe like you've mentioned before, X-Men sales as well, but DC didn't have anything like that, like a, a sudden cash cow. And Warner executives felt that there were just too many comics in their line. They didn't give much exposure to one comic versus another, so they deleted 24 titles. And this created a sequence of events. You have editors like Al Milgram, and Larry Hama, they were both fired and moved over to Marvel, contributing to 1980s Marvel. Larry Hama would create the backstory to all of G.I. Joe and write the G.I. Joe comics. Al Milgram worked with Jim Shooter on a lot of projects. And so then that created a dilemma for DC of how do they copyright 
characters that they haven't published yet, but they want to keep the rights to them. So they created Cancelled Comics Cavalcade, and that was published to secure copyrights of unreleased characters that were canceled before their release. Tell the audience, Larry, about you and your personal experience with the DC Comics implosion. Hey, I wanted to ask, do you have your copy of Cancelled Comics Cavalcade there in that library behind you? No. No? No stats or anything like that? Mm-mm. I think in my community there might have been stats floating around. Right, because they only have a few of those. I think my friend Kevin Gould might might uh, have seen it or have stats. And, you know, maybe one of the... He was pals with Mark Wade. Oh, cool. So anyway... On eBay, they have one for $49,000. So they're kind of hard well, to I mean, get. You know, supposedly, the, supposedly in the price guide, it's only like uh, $3,500. That seems like a steal. So, Right, there you go. I do feel that um, <clears throat> I'm somewhat aware of the, of the implosion. Uh, what I would tell you about that time period, I was certainly getting away from comics and, and more interested in, in girls and being on the radio as a DJ and stuff. But DC had a lot of interesting books. To just look at the little slice of the DC implosion doesn't tell you exactly all of what they were doing uh, in 78, which includes like uh, the Treasury editions with uh, Superman versus Muhammad Ali. And there were a lot of Treasury editions at, at that time. And then they had a lot of interesting books, too, which I think were called Dollar Comics, where books like Superman Family went to Dollar and stuff. And you'd correct me if I have my eras wrong, you know, but I think it was all right in that same time. And blizzards and the bad weather of the late 77 and 78 were uh, a very real thing and i had a friend that was you know trapped in that in that storm and it's really amazing to think of the fact that dc comics you know was such a frail entity that you know uh, having their their publishing plans foiled by this blizzard really put them on the ropes right the comment I want to make about the implosion is mm-hmm. is that if there were books that I liked and followed in the 70s that were sort of um, young books, like, let's say, uh, Commandy, which I thought was a great book, you know? I mean, that was sort of a, a Kirby concept that I could grasp, you know? Yeah, as to yeah, yeah. And, but anyway, and in the implosion, a lot of the books that I found interesting, GC had to eliminate. And I think in regard, in a lot of ways, DC must have cut down to the bone where they were just down to their really basic core titles later in that time period. Right. But that's the most interesting thing to me, that any of the books that I collected, they pretty much wiped out at that time. And, and it set me free, you know, to some degree. Sure. So it, it's, it's interesting that the implosion certainly... That whole year of 78, this, you picked a good topic because obviously the industry is changing. You, you picked a number of, of things like uh, Silver Surfer and maybe Superman versus Muhammad Ali and the implosion that reflect the end of certain eras of comics. Hmm. Then there were clearly some things starting in 78 that may not have resonated in 1978, but were showing the direction that the industry was going to go into. Right. Yeah. And. It should be said also that, you know, as the DC comics were imploding over at Marvel, Archie Goodwin resigned as editor-in-chief to work on the Marvel magazines like Epic, and Jim Shooter became editor-in-chief. And Kirby leaves Marvel, and Jim Shooter kind of gets rid of the writer-editor 
reign over at Marvel. So yeah, people like Marv Wolfman who can't edit their own comics that they're writing, like Tomb of Dracula. And a lot of creators leave Marvel for DC. And so there's a mass migration. But one thing can be said for Shooter is that then he opened up space for people like Larry Hama, Walt Simonson to join and create really famous runs on things like G.I. Joe and Thor and other things. Frank Miller on, those, on Daredevil. Did those guys like Marv Wolfman, did they find autonomy when they went to D.C.? Or did they have to work for creative editors as well? Yeah, yeah. of course they did. But they didn't so have to work did for... Did they really gain anything from it? Or did they just have to find another another place to uh, roost? Yeah, I mean, I think they did in that they probably were treated better at DC than they would have been by Jim Shooter, who would have kind of constantly... Because remember, Marv Wolfman and George Prez were such a success with Teen Titans that they were given the reins to handle Crisis on Infinite Earths and essentially guide the entire DC universe down one road. And, well, but uh, I don't know that they edited those books, though, did they? No, they did not. Okay. I mean, you know, I thought the situation you were describing was at Marvel. It sounded like that there were a lot of like guys that had autonomy, that they were editor right. and writer of their books. Right. And, you know, I would assume that a guy like Shooter, uh. who worked for Julie as a teenager, he had to be a little bit old school. Don't you think that he'd say, you need an editor in the process? Right. Well, he worked for Mort Weisinger, right? Is that what you mean? Shooter? Yeah. Well, I guess he worked for both of them because, you know, there's a we talked about the letter where, you know, Julie fires him, you know, mm. in a letter. I see what you're uh, saying. But, but nonetheless, I would I would assume that Shooter, if you have a mentor, you retain what's good about it. It doesn't mean you can't innovate, you know? Right, right, but right. I think, I think I feel that I think that Jim Shooter is interesting Jeanette Kahn in some ways, but I see Shooter as more of a guy that had his fingers in the machine as being the last guy. I mean, like the 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 son of Stan Lee or whatever, the last yes, guy yes. to rule over the circus of the comic industry as it was in the old days. Yes. And then once you get past Shooter and Jeanette Kahn, then you're into a different beast. Yeah, you're right. The 80s is totally different beast than the 70s was. And and Jim Shooter and Jeanette Kahn were what guided those companies into the new thing. And that's pretty stormy territory, too, because, you know, one of the things is the Shooter says that at some point around 1985, which is close to the crisis, Shooter claims that DC called him and wanted the, him to publish like Superman. Right. And he ran into, you know, and he's like, like, got like a guy on the phone literally running around the building trying to make the deal happen and he couldn't make Marvel do it. Right. The short-sightedness of all these people, you know? Yeah, there's a lot. Well, that's what happens, right? When these people play big boy games in an, in an adult storytelling world and they got to wear their big boy pants, right? Well, and yeah, so I would say that, you know, we don't hear a lot of criticism of our of our pal Julie, but any of these guys that were publishers and editors and stuff like that, you know, you got to don't do the crime if you can't pay the time. Or there you go. So this has been a fun episode of the Comic Book Historian Podcast. We were able to approach the urge for adult storytelling or a higher level of storytelling geared toward adults. That was, seemed to be having an upsurge in 1978. I'm Alex Grand, and this is my guest co-host, Larry King. Larry, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, um, Alex, it's always a pleasure to be your guest. Thank you. Thank you.